Welcome to Owl Have You Know, a podcast from Rice Business. This episode is part of our Flight Path series, where guests share their career journeys and stories of the Rice connections that got them where they are. I realized that so much of the MBA program for me was really learning from my friends and my professors and how do you make tough decisions? On today's episode of I'll Have You Know, I'm joined by Danielle Conkling, 2009 graduate of Rice's full-time program. Danielle is the Director of Corporate Social Responsibility and ESG at Silicon Valley Bank. Her unique role at SVB combines her passion for giving back to the community with her extensive experience in advising entrepreneurs and leaders in the innovation economy. Danielle, welcome to the show. Scott, so great to be here. Thanks so much for having me. This is super exciting. It's my first podcast. So, That's fantastic. Um, hopefully you don't uh, <laughs> <laughs> judge me too too harshly on my performance. No, here. not at all. So. Uh, really looking forward to getting to, <laughs> to know you more and sharing your story with the Rice community at large. And so I just really wanted to start like, where did you grow up and why did you get into banking in the first place? Oh, yeah. That, that's actually really interesting. So I grew up in San Francisco, in the Bay Area. And back then, the Bay Area is, you know, wasn't quite what it is today, Silicon Valley, with all the tech companies and venture firms. You know, even in the 80s and 90s, we had a, a few established tech companies, but it was, you know, a very diverse economy. So a lot of the folks around me were like, doctors and lawyers and teachers, just like anywhere else. And now it's funny to think we have all these tech luminaries around us and HP and Oracle, some microsystems were certainly here, but they were kind of far and in between back then. And to think that I was living amongst all of that and decided to get into banking is kind of funny. So it happened really by accident. I went away to boarding school for high school in Connecticut. And I came back for the summer after I graduated from high school. And I knew I was going off to college in the fall, back again on the East Coast. I was going to go to Georgetown. And my parents asked me to (laughs) figure out something for the summer, basically. And I think at the time they thought I would go to the mall and maybe get like a retail gig or go to the local water park or something. I really don't know what possessed me to do this, but I I borrowed a couple of my mom's suits and I took the BART into San Francisco. I didn't even tell her, I don't think. I had like a half page resume with some babysitting jobs and volunteer work from high school. And I went up and down the elevator at 555 California, also known as the Chocolate Towers. Back then it was before 9-11. So you could just do that. And I would drop off my resume with the front desk and ask them if they needed a temp or an intern for the summer. And I got a couple of callbacks, but I have to be honest. I mean, it could have been an architecture firm, a law firm. It could have been a lot of places, but it was Robertson Stevens, which back then was one of the premier technology investment banks. They called me for an interview and asked me if I'd be interested in working in their PR and events team for the summer. And that's how I got into banking. So that was an exciting summer. So as part of that, we had a big equity research conference in San Francisco. And 
Sandy Robertson, CEO and founder of the firm, was hosting it. And Bill Clinton and a couple other folks were attending. And I got to escort them from the office to the hotel on Nob Hill. And I got to learn a lot about equity. And so that's what got me sold. It was a summer at Robbie Stevens in San Francisco that I got by luck. That's amazing. Elevator circle. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. So it didn't scare you off because uh, you, you, how does the story kind of continue? You went off to Georgetown and did, did that sort of experience lead you into a, an undergraduate major in things? Yeah, absolutely. Because when I applied, I was supposed to be a psychology major, which I guess was probably useful in financial markets because, you know, as we all know, there's especially these days a lot of psychology <laughs> and mental strength <laughs> to the economy and the markets. And so, you know, I switched over to the business school as a finance major and decided to study and focus really on finance and international business. I spent my subsequent years, I went back for another summer to Robbie Stevens and that year worked with similar team, but was more focused with the equity research team and starting to learn some of their business. And then I think the next summer I did an internship actually at a investment firm. It was UBS, Payne Weber. And so it was with their private banking arm. The summer after that was with Chase in their investment bank. And I got to spend a lot of time with the fixed income traders. And so learned a lot about that business. And then ultimately, yeah, I was really focused. And I think it just kind of built on each other in terms of I was learning so much and the scope of banking and financial markets became more and more appealing to me because it was all very new, but also it was really exciting, especially as a young woman. That summer, I spent a lot of time interviewing with various investment banks in New York City. And ultimately, that's another funny story. I ultimately turned down an offer with Chase and took a job with JP Morgan. <laughs> with a role in their equity group, only for a month later for them to announce that they were merging. Things happen. And and I remember when that happened and I got, you know, there's like, you get your sign-on bonus and you sign your contract. I remember the HR recruiter saying, see, we wanted you so badly. You know, we paid how many billion dollars? I was like, right. Uh-huh. <laughs> I wonder if you're disappointed because I turned you down and now I'm back. <laughs> But it all worked out. That's fantastic. And so you ended up in New York City early on in your career. How was that? I mean, what was the, kind of the environment like? And what were some of the unique challenges of being a woman in New York City in banking? And what were some of kind of the key takeaways from that time? Yeah. I mean, it was really exciting to be in New York City and having my first apartment, living on my own. You know, I was lucky enough because I was in banking, I could actually afford a, a studio. Although truth be told, I was really nervous, you know, with all the taxes and, you know, in New York City, you've got federal taxes, but you also have your state taxes and you also have your local taxes all the way down to your city taxes. And I really didn't know what I was going to end up with in the end. So my first couple of weeks, I ate a lot of... <laughs> Chinese takeout and pizza and hot dogs 
off the street in New York because I really didn't know. But I was surprised that I had some leftover to actually have some decent meals and buy some groceries. But I worked a lot back then, probably not too dissimilar from how it is for a lot of our investment bankers at Rice, those who decide to pursue that career path. It was a lot of fun. I learned a lot. I worked really, really hard. I didn't sleep a ton, but I also had a lot of fun. I got to meet a lot of interesting people at work. And I think it was the first time for me like, where I felt like I had more in common with some of my 45, 55-year-old colleagues than I did with you know, my recent graduate friends, unless they were also in banking. So that was really interesting. But I got to meet a lot of people through my young colleagues at work, and we'd meet folks at other banks, and we would have a really good time in New York. So, you know, the the late night hours, sometimes we would go out afterwards and, you know, have a great time together and try to celebrate the little time we could get off. But it was definitely a work hard, play hard kind of atmosphere back then, but I wouldn't trade it for the world. What were some of the things that drew you to finance or what is it about the profession that really drew you in and kept you engaged? So I think a few things. In the very beginning, I think when I was just getting into it, especially with all my internships, it was very fast paced. I really enjoyed to some degree, like the betting and the decision-making you had to make on economic indicators. And I found that really interesting. I think as I learned the business more, it became more about the relationships and the relationships with clients and my ability to guide and advise them and really offer them solutions for you know some of their challenges. And I think I really enjoyed that. And, you know, I was young and, you know, be, to be 23 years old and traveling with a CFO and a CEO and going on their roadshow was a huge responsibility, but I grew up a lot from that, right? I think there's very few people who have that kind of opportunity. And I look back and I think, gosh, that's pretty crazy. But I think it also gave me the confidence that I could really form relationships with people that were seemingly way ahead of me in life, but that I could build those relationships and learn from them and maybe provide even some value to them. And so I think I really enjoyed that. And like, of course, it allowed me to kind of have a lifestyle and security that, you know, you might not have in other careers, but I think it kind of really drove me and exposed me to a lot of things, including like the work that I ultimately ended up in, in my more recent career may help me find my passions outside of work. What I realized was that you can be really, really good at something and enjoy it. It doesn't have to be your life passion right? But it enables you to be able to do the things you really, really love. I think sometimes also you become pretty good at something and it just becomes easy to stay with it. And like I said, it allows you to do other things on the side to kind of round things out. Yeah, I love that. So you'd spent time, obviously grew up on the West Coast, school on the East Coast, but then you decided to come do an MBA on, as I like to call us here, the third coast. 
down here in uh, in Houston. And so what ultimately got Rice on your radar and what, what was some of the decision making that led you to do a full-time MBA here? So to be honest, it kind of all happened very, very quickly. So at the time, my husband was wrapping up graduate school in Boston. And we were thinking about what our next steps might be. And I always had an MBA on my radar. And he had a few job offers. And one of them was with McKinsey in the Houston office because he would be joining the energy practice. He was focused on renewable energy at the time, but the practice was really at that time based there. So it wasn't really on our radar, but I knew he was really excited about the role. And I had a couple of cousins who actually lived in Houston. And so that was kind of compelling. And so I reached out to Rice about the MBA program. I think I applied in the last round. So luckily they had enough space for me, (laughs) but they were so gracious. I loved it because it was a small program. I've always been a fan of small schools and I knew that The program had all the different elements of a graduate program that I was looking for in business. And it would allow me and my husband to be in the same area. There was a lot of couples who were splitting up for career reasons or for school. And I didn't really want that to happen. But when I visited, I really enjoyed the people. And I had such a warm welcome. And I remember meeting another. McKinsey significant other who was a year or two ahead of me who had also gotten in their MBA and just spent a lot of time with her and convinced me that, you know, this would be a good path to pursue. And so that's how I ended up becoming an owl. Super cool. I mean, what were some of the experiences being in the full-time program that have stuck with you now over the decade now since you've graduated? I really think it was the friendships and the relationships that I built over those two years. Moving to a city where beyond two cousins, I didn't really know that many people. My husband was traveling four or five days a week, getting to meet people from all over. And it's funny now because it's been a while, which seems really crazy. It's been over 10 years And I'm still in touch with classmates. I feel like wherever I go, and I was just on WhatsApp with a couple of my guy friends from the program, and they just had babies over the last couple of years, and they were just really excited to show those cute photos. And I think about we first started getting to know one another. We were all trying to figure out the program and how to tackle it all. And I'm sure that first semester was stressful at times and trying to figure out how to work together and how we built relationships and how we learned from one another. And then all of that. And then when we graduated, having those relationships, we all went off and reconnecting how many years later and still having that commonality and that relationship to one another and really those memories. I think it's really special. For me, that's really what I got out of it. And I think, you know, I learned a lot about how to think and how to develop leadership skills and strategies in business beyond what sort of the more tactical work that you do. I realized that so much of the MBA program for me was 
really learning from my friends and my professors and how do you make tough decisions? And I still think I rely on some of some of that maybe to become a little innate to how I go about things. Yeah, very cool. Was there anything that surprised you about the experience coming to Houston and starting school? Or was there anything that you kind of expected? Like you said, you had some cousins here and things. Maybe you had a few expectations, but anything that surprised you as you kind of settled in? So the first couple of days of orientation, we were starting to meet our professors. And then there was one who like couldn't make it. And it turned out, so it had been one of those like super hot, humid weeks. Like those of us not from the area were like, whoa, this is intense. And then it would like, it'd start like raining golf balls every morning at like 3 a.m. and like tropical, right? It was like flash floods. I was not used to that. Like I had lived on the West Coast, on the East Coast, and I'd never seen anything like it. And it turned out that that professor had to go rescue his wife because she was caught in one of those underpasses and they had to have like the firefighters. And I was like, wow, it's a real thing. And I remember at the time being like, wait a second, but I parked my car in the garage underground (laughs) and being like, I really hope it's not going to be a problem. (laughs) But, you know, we went through a lot of that, I think together. And I remember Hurricane Ike happened when I was there. And I remember I was out of town and calling a business school buddy who lived around the corner to check on my house. And he did that. I mean, that's why like those things are so memorable to me. Because that whole experience of living in Texas was just so different from anything I had experienced. But again, it was really my rice friends that made it so special and and really just so easy to like acclimate. Because of course, like the local Texans were like, don't worry, we're on it. Like, you know, because all of us from outside of the area were just like, what is going on? And uh, Hurricane Katrina, I mean, all that happened right around then. Yeah, yeah the weather is definitely something to uh, to get used to. I wanted to, to, to touch on something you'd kind of mentioned that your early career enabled you to kind of pursue some passions. And so I wanted to explore a little bit of the next phase of just... How did you end up post-graduation back on the West Coast and some of the passions that you're pursuing and how how some of those came to be? Yeah, absolutely. So the Rice experience was very special for me for many reasons. I went to New York for my summer internship. I worked at American Express and I was doing some of their corporate card partnerships work. And during that summer, my husband and I ended up getting pregnant, totally unexpected. And I remember calling the dean at the time and being like, hey, bad news. I'm wrapping up my internship, but um, but I'm having a baby in nine months. And so I don't know if that's going to be an issue for graduating. And he was like, well, first of all, this is good news. <laughs> like, um, congratulations. And by the way, I just want to let you know that Worst things have happened, and this is a good thing that's happened. We will make it work, and you will graduate on time. And that was amazing, and I did. And so I went to some extra classes. I did some classes with the evening MBAs. I did a special sort of, in my last last semester once the baby was born, some research projects with some professors. But I was able to graduate. 
And my son, who's now 13 and a half, was able to be there for my Rice graduation. So I don't know if that makes him like an honorary owl or something, but he was in my belly. And my classmates and my professors were so amazing about the whole thing because I do remember like literally pitching like some real venture capitalists, (laughs) very, very pregnant. And I couldn't even get like a real suit on because it just was that time and uh, and it wasn't going to work. And they were just so fabulous. And I would bring food, like I was always hungry. So I would like bring food to class and people were like, oh my God, there she is with her Whataburger and her burritos. And like the professors were just like, amazed they were like she she is here she's getting her work done she brings you know her giant freebirds burritos but it's all good (laughs) and I think what I realized with that and, and really like the community and everything rallied around that and just were so so helpful is that I graduated in 2008 which was a challenging time and decided not to take my offer from American Express because I didn't want to move to New York City again with a baby. But I also, I don't know, I just wasn't in a place where interviewing made sense. And so I decided to just not interview and I would just revisit things when I was ready. At that point, when I was graduating, I just started talking to like alumni. And actually, originally, I, I kind of shifted gears because I didn't know what I could do and where I wanted to end up. And so I decided just to stay in Houston. So my husband had this really great gig at McKinsey and it was doing well with the Houston office. But I decided to go back into banking, which was not my plan because I was doing more like corporate development, partnerships, product development at American Express, which I was really excited about. But, you know, life happens. And I was like, all right, how do I pivot my skills to something that's flexible in case like we need to move at some point and I'm not going to be in Houston. Like, you know, oil and gas is great, but the reality is that like it's more than likely I would move back to the West or East Coast. And it was actually a Rice alum who graduated a year ahead of me I had re-engaged with J.P. Morgan, who I'd started my career with right after college. And a colleague was like, hey, I don't know if you remember, there's another colleague that we worked with closely is now the head of the private bank for J.P. Morgan globally. You know, I'll put you back in touch. But then also I learned that there was a couple of Rice MBA graduates who were in the Houston office. So Charlie Donaldson, if if you're out there as an alum, thank you. <laughs> He got me introduced to the Houston office directly, and then it was great that friends of mine from my previous career kind of rounded out some of those introductions. And so that's where I ended up. But pretty quickly into my career, I got an opportunity to move back to the Bay Area and help open the Silicon Valley office for J.P. Morgan, private bank. And that's what really brought me back. But I'd say throughout my entire career, particularly after my MBA program, I was doing a lot of nonprofit work on the side. So even when I was, you know, a banker, a consultant early in my career, yeah, I had limited time, but I was always like volunteering or mentoring or something. And that was a lot of what I had really enjoyed as well during my MBA program, those opportunities. So when I got back to the Bay Area, I started looking for opportunities to like advise join junior boards and things like that. And that's what got me started. And so, you know, I continued my career 
went from JP Morgan's private bank to Citi's, stayed on with a number of nonprofits, working with them and advising them. And then when I joined SVB and took a leadership role uh, leading their strategy work for the private bank, I got to be really good friends with the head of corporate social responsibility at SVB. And that was exciting because, like I said, I was always doing this on the side because it was like my passion project. But then one day it was like, well, what if this was your full-time role? And I was like, oh, and you would pay me for that? And he said, absolutely. And it was kind of a leap of faith. But I also knew that if I ever wanted to go back to banking, I probably could. And so initially, you know, I was focused on sort of philanthropy and community and the strategy around that. And then, you know, it was also at a time that ESG and sustainability was on the rise and our board of directors and our legal and investor relations team were trying to figure out kind of how SVB would start to build sort of a strategy and program around it. And they were like, you, you've done some of this work and you've built strategies before, maybe not around ESG. You can figure this out. And so complete departure from what I had started my career in, but not really because for a long time, there was that lens of ESG investing. And so it wasn't unfamiliar to me. It was just you know, really just different to do it from like an issuer perspective. I never looked back. I took the opportunity and decided, yes, I'm going to try this. And I love it. And I don't think I would ever go back to banking. I mean, I miss the client work, but I've also figured out how to bring it together. So a lot of the work I now do around ESG and sustainability is around, you know, how do we integrate this into how we do business, how we operate, and how we serve our client ecosystem. No, I think that's amazing. There's there's like two things there that I feel like I want to unpack. Let's stay on the the Silicon Valley Bank thread for a minute because like you're describing, ESG and corporate sustainability are all topics of interest and growing. And so you are at an amazing organization working on big, important things. Like, how do you think about and, and describe the challenges around ESG and corporate sustainability for big organizations? Yeah. I mean, I would say that ESG is broad terminology is tricky, right? Everyone's like, well, what's the difference between ESG and sustainability and corporate responsibility? So that in itself is a challenge and there's nuances to all of that, but it is broad. And depending on what stage your company is in or what type of industry or subsector, like what's material to your organization can be very, very different. So it's not like this one size fits all. And trying to wrap your heads around that and being able to prioritize, it is a learning experience, I think, for everybody. And sometimes it's not even the obvious things. So I, I think that's one challenge. I do think another challenge right now, especially in today's economic market environment is where does this fit in and how is this prioritized given that there's so much uncertainty for companies right now? How do they keep focused on this and see it as part of their long-term strategy and make those investments and see it as contributing ultimately to the bottom line when it sometimes feels like because you're trying to stand it up, you know, they're simply expenses. So I think that's another 
challenge right now. And then I think the other challenge is honestly expertise. There's very few sustainability experts in the world. And certainly those that have practical experience implementing this within a real operating organization. You know, we've always had lots of academics and researchers and thought leaders. There's only so many consultants that can go around. And so you'll see a lot of people like myself who came from within the industry and might be passionate about it, but might be learning it as well for the first time. Fewer practitioners, and it's a it's a practice that is evolving as we're experiencing it. It's an exciting space. You know, you see kind of in the news, like one article that I was just looking at recently was the Patagonia restructuring and assigning all the profits to address climate change and some of these big issues. How do you think about the spectrum of, of outcomes and the purpose of business? And don't mean to put you on the spot with kind of a random example, but I'm just using that as an extreme example that's out there as, as organizations wrestle with their responsibility as an organization. Can you share just a couple of thoughts or things that kind of are guiding principles for you as you wrestle with those items? Absolutely. I mean, Patagonia, it's so inspiring, but they are much more mature in their sustainability work. This is something that they were kind of founded on, that the principles they live by, and it's really integrated into how they operate as a company. I think most companies are much further behind in that they are still learning and trying to figure out how to catch up and figure out like it wasn't part of their founding and their purpose as a company. And so now they're trying to figure out, well, okay, how do we make ourselves purposeful? What is our purpose? And for some, it's a bigger pivot, right? Like it really challenges what they do and how they think about the world and the everyday widgets or services that they put out there into the market. So I think it can be challenging for certain companies, but I think that the good news is that there's a lot of stakeholders out there who believe in this and understand that ESG and sustainability do have an impact on long-term sustainability of the company success and ultimately its profitability and returns to investors, right? And it it takes time to realize that because you really have to embed it into how you do business, right? So it's also, you know, it's as simple as diversity, equity, and inclusion. You know, if you have diverse perspectives, you're probably able to tap into a broader client base and also able to appreciate like others' values and interests and needs. So that should be a good thing. But to be able to demonstrate that takes time, of course. So that's just like an example. The other example, right, would be around climate. A lot of the work, if you think about it, the investments in ESG actually allow companies to also reduce costs and create efficiencies over time. But again, that takes time and a lot of it's new. So there's that time that you need to kind of build it and then 
roll out and implement a lot of this work and then to realize the benefits also takes time. You know, I think most companies are just beginning that work right now. No, that's really helpful. And I'm, I'm curious, I suspect that there are people that come to you for advice on like, how did you get into sustainability and how do you kind of make that, that transition? And it sounds like a bit of you pursued kind of some passions in your own free time that built some of those muscles and that exposure. Is that in your view, kind of one of the best ways to execute that pivot or are there other resources that you've seen that are, that are starting to kind of surface that people who have that interest might be able to take that leap and start to add to the talent and capability that are solving these kinds of problems? Absolutely. I mean, I I think I'm kind of part of the generation scramble where they need to get leaders in place and they had to pivot some of us. I don't know that that's sustainable, obviously, but I do think that there is a lot of interest at many levels of talent in organizations. So I always say, just don't dismiss that because sometimes I've focused a lot on kind of the broad corporate responsibility, but as I shifted more of my time to ESG and sustainability and climate work, the philanthropy community work that I was doing, actually a colleague took over who was passionate about that work. And she'd been a really, really senior leader, a managing director doing completely different things, but it was sort of her passion work that she would work closely with us. And similar to me, a lot of people are looking for purpose in their careers. And I tell a lot of young people, I think there's more opportunity because one, your universities and colleges now have sustainability focused curriculum. So you're you're going in with you'll be going into interviews and opportunities with some kind of foundation versus I had to go read about it, hire a bunch of consultants and kind of learn on the job. I think another opportunity is consulting firms. They are losing a lot of their top talent in-house because every company that's now doing ESG has to be able to demonstrate that they have leadership focused on this work, which also includes talent with certain expertise. So they're losing a lot. And then the big consulting firms who were not sustainability firms are also trying to hire those same consultants because they need to build sustainability practices. So they need a bench. And so I would say, you know, there are like the pure sustainability firms like ERM, BSR, Anthesis, all of those firms. But then the McKinsey's, the BCG's, the E&Y's, the PW, all of them, the Deloitte, like they're all also doing it. And what's nice is you have a lot of resources and it's a good way to work on different types of consulting engagements and projects, you know, and then you can go on. Oftentimes, like their clients will hire them, which is why they're in this predicament that they don't have enough talent. (laughs) So I'd say there are different ways to go about it. But I mean, I really like the consulting approach, especially because ESG is still evolving. So it's not a bad place to start. I would be remiss if we didn't get a chance to double click and talk about some of the philanthropy work that you've done. An organization called Girls Leadership and another one called Build. And I'd love to just get a little bit of some of the learnings and experience and kind of how you got in and kind of sustained some of your work with these organizations. 
Absolutely. So, so I've known Build for a really long time. When I moved to the West Coast after my time in Houston, I was looking for something where I thought, you know, I could mentor, but I could also be an advisor to the organization. And at the time, my company, JP Morgan, we had a corporate foundation. And there was a number of organizations that we've been supporting and doing work with and you know, out there in the community with our clients. And they were just on a list. And I, I liked what Build stood for, which at the time was about helping kids who were struggling in high school in low-moderate income communities find purpose and academic re-engagement through entrepreneurship. And what I like is because I think a lot of schools, even challenged schools, have their really strong students. And this program actually targets those that are at risk of dropping out. And they use entrepreneurship and the idea of like get together with a group of your peers, learn how to start a business, learn how to put a business plan together. But they also learn things that we learned in our MBA program, like how do you put financial statement together? How do you put a marketing plan? Those are things I would never have done as a 14 or 15 year old. And here they are doing that, coming from some of the most challenging circumstances. And they get these mentors from really cool companies like Google and Facebook and SVB and other companies, and they get the support of real Silicon Valley venture capitalists. And I loved it. I started out as a mentor, worked with them, prepping for business plan competitions, became a business plan competition judge, joined their associate board, became a board member in Northern California. I'm now on the executive board of their California state board. Um, and I've just really grown with them. And part of the reason why like, I continue to be involved and support their work is because the outcomes and the fact that their programs really do change the trajectory of life for a lot of these kids and their families is just amazing. And in fact, one of them went through the program, is now a fellow board member with me. Her story at one of the fundraisers is what really hooked me. And we're friends now, and it's people like her that really drive that. And then continuing to be involved with girls' leadership, although you know there's a couple others who have taken my, my board role recently at SVB. Uh, it's time to pass on the reins. But, you know, I really believe in that as a woman, especially somebody who started her career in the investment bank in New York, being the only female on my first team, which was quite daunting. Just helping girls really develop their voice and their confidence is really important. And so, and you really have to do that early because they've seen a lot. There's a lot of research that sees two big drop-offs. And a lot of them is actually one, the age at which my daughter is in, as a nine-year-old in fourth grade. It's usually a big drop-off. That's also like the age where like girls and boys temporarily sort of split up. But sometimes it's an unintentional, but the grown-ups in their lives, whether they be teachers, educators, or even parents, unintentional, some of the messaging and signaling how they're treated signals that, you know, there are certain things that are meant for them versus others. And so that's where you see a lot of that drop off. Um, there's another drop off that tends to happen actually during the college years. There's another drop off in confidence amongst young women, uh, whereas there's a rise in young men oftentimes. And obviously there's lots of factors to that. So in today's age, you know, there's lots of things, you know, may not 
work exactly like that. But to that work is really important because it helps provide the programming to help support the girls in developing their voice very early, as early as like kindergarten, but really builds on that in an age-appropriate way as they get older on the way to university. It could be as simple as like book clubs and them being able to like voice their ideas around plot or a character to like improv. And so there's a lot of things that you can do, but a lot of it too is about educating the grown-ups in their lives along the way so that it's a consistent experience for those girls. And so that's why I became involved because it's not always easy, especially if you are a young woman and, you know, in, in a career that, you know, is maybe a little bit more male dominated. And so, you know, that work is really important. It's been important to me, especially because I have a young daughter and a young daughter, I would say that, you know, has kind of a very big, bold, independent dreams for herself. Really appreciate you sharing. I have three daughters myself that are in those age ranges and just love hearing that perspective and appreciate that. As we get close to the end here, Danielle, I wanted to ask, I understand that you like to travel to kind of some off the beaten path places. And so I, I wanted just a sharp pivot in the discussion to uh, get your, your top travel location recommendations, places you've been. Oh gosh, this is hard. So my family loves to travel globally and off the beaten path is our preference. With COVID and everything, it's been a little bit challenged, but our family has been to Iceland, to Morocco, um, to some interesting places in Japan, Ireland. We are currently planning our trip to Europe next year and hoping to go to some sort of more remote islands in Greece. And I'd say over the last couple of years, I've found some really cool gems in the U.S. as well. So we um, discovered this amazing dude ranch experience in Wyoming. And now it's become a little bit of a tradition. And my kids are kind of little cowboys and cowgirls and <laughs> it's been a really fun time and something we've done and, and now we've recruited a lot of friends to come do it with us so you know cow sorting is our new thing take advantage and you know especially while you're at rice and there's always some really cool trips i remember some classmates going to africa and building incubators for communities out there take advantage because as you know you can't always take for granted like the time you have to do those adventures. No doubt. No, that's great perspective. Danielle really has been a privilege to have you on. This has been fantastic. Thanks, Scott. It's been fun. Thanks for listening. This has been I'll Have You Know, a production of Rice Business. You can find more information about our guests, hosts, and announcements on our website, business.rice.edu. Please subscribe and leave a rating wherever you find your favorite podcasts. We'd love to hear what you think. The hosts of I'll Have You Know are myself, Scott Gale, and Maya Pomeroy.